As we begin this, this second Sunday of Advent, obviously uh, we've got a new candle lit this week, talking about peace. Um, some of you know this about me by now. I've been here a little over a year. Some of you may not know me that well yet still. Um, I'm a bit of a, a history, the nice word is buff. I call myself nerd. Do we have any history buffs here? Any people that enjoy like world history type thing? Yeah. Are we familiar with the idea of the Pax Romana? Have you heard this? Or maybe you're just really good at Jeopardy and know these types of things. Um, Pax Romana, the Roman piece, right? Are we familiar with that? Um, it's okay if you're not. I'm going to talk about it here for a moment. Um, but this, this Roman piece, this, uh, this era, this extended period of peace in the Roman Empire began when Augustus or Octavian defeated Mark Antony and Cleopatra in the year 31 B.C. Um, and he became the Roman emperor. And it didn't bring peace immediately, but it started a trajectory where uh, in the, what would become the Roman Empire uh, had conflicts all over the place, little squabbles between small factions, between cities, between nations, between peoples. There was all these little conflicts, and Rome was trying to govern this type of thing. But under their new emperor, uh, a new peace started to come about. Uh, and this peace lasted until about 250 AD. So this was an extended period for a region in the world that was known for conflict and wars and trouble. There was this extended period of what they're calling the, the Roman peace. Uh, and what happened was the Roman military power and the Roman economic power grew so great that either people, nations, groups, whatever, fell in line with the Roman Empire or you would get crushed and destroyed by them. And that was peace. <laughs> you do what we want or we will crush you. Um, and that kind of brought a lot of the squabbling and conflicts to an end. And this was the definition of peace for them. It was the absence of conflict due to threat uh, of force or threat of suffering. If you don't comply with the more powerful party involved, you're going to pay the consequences. And so this lack of conflict... Uh, may have been peace for Rome, may have been peace for the rulers, like we don't have to worry about all these people fighting anymore. If you were one of the people being ruled this way, it probably didn't feel like peace. It probably felt like oppression or tyranny, right? Uh, it reminds me of, on a much smaller scale, the bully on the playground in elementary school that wants your lunch money, right? Uh, give me your lunch money or I'm going to beat you up. And so you bring them and you give them your lunch money. And as long as you give them the lunch money, you do what he wants. You're not getting hit in the face. Or you're not getting beat up. So we'll call that peace? Not really. I mean, you're not in a fight, but I wouldn't call it peace, would you? That's the Pax Romana. That's the Roman peace on a larger scale. So why am I starting the sermon today with this Roman peace, this Pax Romana? Well, because that's where the gospel author of Luke begins our text for today. In a few moments, we're going we're gonna to look at uh, chapter 3 in Luke, and it begins with the rule of Caesar. At the time of Jesus' birth, Rome was ramping up its peace through violence campaign. That was their strategy, peace through violence. The Roman peace was a backdrop to the stories of the gospel. 
I don't know if you've ever made that connection before or not, but like I said, it started around 31 BC and went to 250 AD. There was something significant happening in Israel somewhere in that, <laughs> during that window. The scriptures have the backdrop of this Roman peace. Caesar, Pilate, Herod, these are the rulers that kept peace through the sword, right? These rulers made arrangements. Our scriptures will tell us in a moment these uh, rulers made arrangements with the people that ran the temple, the chief priests, to ensure that the religion of Israel wouldn't cause problems. Now, Rome didn't care. They, they didn't have a problem with religion. In the Roman Empire, there was many diverse peoples with many diverse religions. They really didn't care about what God you worshipped and all that. Just don't let it mess up our trade. Don't mess, let it mess up our economy. Don't let it mess up our way of ruling. And so they made deals with the, the rulers of the temple. Basically said, uh, we're powerful, and if you do what we want, you can stay in power. You can continue to rule the temple. And as long as you're not a problem for us, we'll let you do what you want to do. So there's no active conflicts between Rome and Israel. There's no wars going on at this time. Because if there was, if you, as sometimes in the history of Israel, would act up against the ruling class, the ruling powers, uh, there's some stories of what were called the zealots, who would get a small army together and try and attack the Roman soldiers, it would mean a quick end to your group. Roman peace was actually power over others. It was actually control. It was peace for the rulers, but oppression for those being ruled. And so what's unique about our scriptures, not just the gospel stories, but all of our scriptures, is they tell the stories of the ruled people. Now, much of history, and you've probably heard this expression, history is written by the winners, right? Right? But our scriptures are unique in the sense that it is, we have stories, we have critiques, we have uh, the perspective of the, of the slaves. We have perspective of those that were conquered. We have perspective of those that were exiled. We have their perspective. We have critiques of kings not based on their, their ability to acquire wealth and military might, but on their ability to care for people. It's from the perspective not of the powerful and those on top, but from the people being ruled. And that's what our, our gospel story is today. Is, this is a perspective, it's a critique of the rulers. And so our text today, as I said a moment ago, begins by naming the rulers, these powerful men who brought peace to the world through threat of violence. So if you've got your Bible, or you want to follow along on the screen, um, or if you need a Bible, in the back of the chairs is there. Um, we're in Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Luke 3, 1 through 6. Uh, it says, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, when Herod was tetrarch or ruler of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah, the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. 
Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. Uh, will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word. Again, as I say most every week, we are grateful for the words on the pages of our Bible that have been preserved and translated and uh, studied so that we may have understanding of what it is that you want to say to us. For 2,000 years, you have preserved these teachings, and, and as we open our Bibles or our electronic devices today, we can access those words. And so for that, we are grateful. But more importantly, we are grateful for the word that has become flesh, the word that moves and lives amongst us, the word that shapes our lives and invites us to know you in an intimate way. Father, may that word speak to our hearts and minds today. It's in your son's name we pray that. Amen. Amen. Uh, if we could have the next slide. Do you guys have that? Yeah. All right. So as we get started, um, kind of digging into this scripture today, I wanted to point out this. This, Are you... I, I don't don't expect you guys to know where that's at, because I don't even know where that's at. That was called Google. Um, but are you familiar with this concept, right? Where there's a path, a preferred way that gets blocked, and uh, obviously you can see that people just go around it. <laughs> Have you ever had that like a place at a park, in a park I grew up uh, as a little kid, there was the preferred paths, the sidewalks that kind of meandered around, and then there's the path that all the kids rode their bike on that got to the playground. I'm talking about, are you familiar with this? The, 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 the path is blocked or locked, and so we just go around it and go around the barrier. This is the, the path of least resistance. Instead of dealing with the barrier in front of you, you can just go around it. Um, can we have the next slide? Uh, the same type of thing happened in Israel. And many of you are familiar with this, uh, the story of going from Galilee, which is in the north, to Jerusalem in the south. There was a straight path, and you can probably see, I don't, I don't know if, depending on where you're at, if you can see that, it's really small, but you can see the, the straight arrows kind of up and down um, from Jerusalem to, to, to Galilee, Galilee to Jerusalem. It's kind of a straight shot. Um, but it would take you through a land called Samaria. And in that land of Samaria were people that the Jewish people did not get along with. And I'm not going to preach that whole situation scenario there, but it was conflict. There was issue. There was a problem there. And so while you could go from Nazareth or the Galilee up north to Jerusalem by going that straight shot through Samaria, most Jewish people would do the end around, the loop to the side, to avoid a people that they had a conflict with. They would take the extra long journey. Uh, it would take an extra couple of days to get there because they would avoid a region that had people that they didn't get along with. A long-standing conflict. It wasn't something that they just did that day. It was their ancestors had problems with the other people's ancestors. Generation after generation of unresolved conflict created this, what I'm calling a crooked path. Um, the crooked paths are evidence for the absence of peace. Even if they weren't at war, even if there wasn't an active conflict, you can still see on the map that there was a problem here, right? There's a path around. You can pick that down. That's fine. Um, today we're talking about peace. 
And our definition of peace is shaped more today by our experience and understanding of what war is than maybe it is shaped by the biblical teaching of what peace is. So today we're going to talk about peace by talking about crooked paths. The Gospel of Luke turns our attention to John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. Um, us good Nazarenes don't want to call him the Baptist because we don't want to give Baptist too much credit. Um, well, we got Jesus the Nazarene, so we win anyways, but right? Uh, but so you got John the Baptist or John the Baptizer, and, and Luke connects John with words in the book of Isaiah. As you read that in Luke 3 a few moments ago, did you catch that? The words of Isaiah. This comes from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 5. And John reminds us of the turmoil of exile, right? Because these scriptures that come from Isaiah that are quoted in Luke 3 come from a time Israel had been conquered by uh, the Babylonian army. They had been taken from their homeland, from their promised land, and, and brought into exile to live in Babylon. They had been conquered and forced from their homes they lived in a land ruled by others. Their lives were dictated and shaped by these powerful men that were not their king. Israel hadn't been destroyed. They didn't kill them all. They didn't wipe them out. But they were not active war between Israel and Babylon. There wasn't active fighting going on. But they weren't at home. Right? The people of Israel knew that they weren't where they were supposed to be. That things weren't as they should be. Things weren't right. They, they were not being led by God's anointed king, which is where the word Messiah comes from. God's anointed one means Messiah. And so the context of Isaiah 40, this a voice in the wilderness, the crooked path being made straight, the valleys being filled, the mountains being lowered, that comes from a time in the life of Israel where they were wanting to go back home. They were expecting that God was going to lead them back home and that they would experience God's salvation. And what they hoped for, what they wanted, was for that path back home to be straight, not crooked. They wanted that path to be level, not with valleys and mountains. Right? They expected God to move mountains, to fill valleys, to, to straighten the way to be back home. Their hope was in God returning them back to Israel. And Luke chapter 3 begins by listing Roman rulers that ruled Israel. So Israel had returned home. They got to go back. But even after returning home, they were still exiles in some sense. The wrong people were still ruling them. That's why Luke lists them out. You got Caesar and Herod and Pilate. So we're home, but we're still being ruled by the wrong kings. Israel desired God's salvation. They wanted God to send the new king to rule them, to lead them in the ways of God. Verse 6 that we read a moment ago says that all people will see the salvation of the Lord. So not only do they anticipate salvation, but they expect God to do it in such a way that the world will witness the goodness of God. That maybe even others will have the opportunity to experience God's work of redemption and salvation as well. There's something that I, I've noticed more recently that I, I, I overlooked for years. I always knew that this was the case, but I never connected the meaning behind it. One of the things I want to make sure that we notice as we look at Luke chapter 3 is that John was performing religious activities in the wilderness. He was preaching and baptizing 
out in the wilderness. And I, of course, I knew that, right? Like growing up as a kid in the church, you, you hear that all the time. John was out in the wilderness, and it's usually attributed to him being like this weird guy, wears weird things and eats weird things. So, of course, he's out in the wilderness. But I realized recently that Israel had a, an official place where you're supposed to do religious activities. They had a, a place where God dwelled, that if you wanted to do something religious, you would go there. And they had people that were paid uh, <laughs> to perform religious activities in this official place, the temple and the chief priest. And if you wanted forgiveness, you would go there and you'd sacrifice. If you wanted uh, to pray, you would go there and you'd pray. If you needed to, to, to uh, participate in religious activity, you would go to the temple. That's why it existed. That was the official center of religion. That's where you would go. But the mention of, of the chief priests in Luke chapter 3 in the connection with Caesar and Herod and Pilate raises the question, <coughs> what do you do if the powerful people in charge of the religious center, religious institutions, are complicit with these Roman rulers? The people in the temple got their power because they accepted the Roman terms of peace. The chief priests were able to continue doing what they were doing because they committed to go along with Roman rule. Rome said, don't resist us and we won't destroy you. Work with us and you will be rewarded with power and status. And, and so the chief priests, you see why they get so nervous when Jesus is out here doing stuff or John is out here doing stuff or other people are out there doing things because it could upset the peace with Rome. And so John is not in the temple, but in the wilderness. He's in the wilderness doing this because he's not concerned about Roman peace. He's concerned with holy peace. The peace of God. True peace. The biblical word for peace is shalom. Right? You may be familiar with that. John is in the wilderness, not because he wants peace with Rome, but because he wants peace that's called shalom, peace with God, peace of God. When we see the word peace in our Bibles, it's most often the biblical word shalom. It's been translated as peace. But our understanding of peace in the modern sense isn't the same, isn't exactly the same as how Israel understood the concept of shalom. It's similar, but not the same. Shalom is not simply the absence of conflict. Like if you're at war with somebody and you stop, we'll call that peace, but Israel wouldn't call that shalom. Shalom is the condition of being uninjured and safe. Shalom is the condition of being whole and sound. Shalom in the New Testament is understood to be reconciliation with God and with others. It's relationship. Shalom means complete well-being. It means phys physical, psychological, social, spiritual. It all flows with one's relationships. You know, your relationship with God, your relationship with others, even your relationship or attitude towards yourself. Shalom, this peace of God, isn't reached through force or threat or by fear. It's not created through manipulation or control. You can't bring shalom with a big army. You can't bring shalom by threatening somebody else. Shalom is the condition of wholeness in relationship. And so the, the peace of Rome, the Pax Romana, came through coercion and submission, domination. The peace of God comes through relationships based on mutual care and reconciliation. 
Shalom is working through the differences, the barriers, the sins between the parties. As I mentioned a few moments ago, Jews and Samaritans didn't quite get along, but they were at peace as long as they didn't engage each other. As long as you hike the extra mile around, the extra miles around, we could call it peace. We're not fighting. We just don't talk to each other. These were creating crooked paths that people followed to avoid working through that conflict. Those crooked paths were the evidence of a lack of shalom. This is why John's message of baptism of repentance and forgiveness of sins. You might be wondering why on a Sunday where we're talking about peace, do we look at a passage of scripture where John's preaching about forgiveness of sins and repentance? What does sin, forgiveness, reconciliation have to do with peace? Well, John knew you could have Roman version of peace without confession and forgiveness of sins. But you couldn't have shalom peace without confession or forgiveness of sins. You can't have shalom without repentance and reconciliation. Peace is not the absence of conflict, but the condition of well-being. It's about restoring that which is broken. It's about something being made whole. That's peace. And so I think we've all experienced this in one way or another and, and know it to be true even if we've never articulated it this way. Have you ever had a conflict with somebody, a spouse, family member, coworker, somebody in your life, and you just don't want to have that fight right now? You just don't want to deal with it. Like, we got work to do, we got something else we need to focus on, like it's not good to have this conflict, this argument right now. And so you just walk away and ignore it. I know I'm not the only one that's experienced this, right? <laughs> you don't want to fight now, and so you're not fighting. But would you consider that peace? Tell me you don't walk in the other room and grumble to yourself. Tell me you don't go down in the basement and to find a project to work on, and, and you're replaying the conversation. Tell me that the next time you have to go into the, the area, the office where that person works, that you don't take a different path because you don't want to go by their, their workstation. Right? Or the next time the family gets together for a holiday, we just commit, we're not going to talk about that subject. Just don't bring that up. Right? It's not an act of conflict. You're not fighting. You're not throwing punches. You're not calling names. But are you at peace? Is the relationship whole? Is there reconciliation? And that's the distinction between Roman peace and the peace of God. If all you're worried about is an absence of conflict, then walking the other way is fine, but God is concerned about the relationship. Right? You're not at peace. If the argument has a negative impact on your relationship, if you have to wonder if those people are out in the world saying things about you, if you go out of your way to avoid them creating these crooked paths, you may have peace in some sense, but you don't have shalom. The peace of God, shalom, is a condition that goes beyond whether you're fighting or not. It goes to the very nature and condition of our relationships with God and with others. This is the peace that God offers to us. This is the good news of the gospel, is that we can experience this type of relationship. Broken relationships can be made whole. Broken uh, relationships can be reconciled. You can have peace with God and with others. This is the good news of the gospel. That which was broken can be restored. 
the sin that functioned as a barrier between you and me can be removed. The sin that was a barrier between me and God can be removed and that relationship can be made whole. We can experience shalom. That's good news. In Jesus, through Jesus, we can experience reconciliation and wholeness. We can experience peace on earth that goes beyond the absence of wars but goes very deep into our own souls and brings us a condition of true peace. We can receive a peace that comes from things being made right, sin being forgiven, uh, sin being met with love and mercy and justice. And when I say justice, I don't mean punishment. I mean when God says justice, he's talking about things being fixed. So if grandma's uh, grocery money is stolen, justice isn't the criminal going to jail. Justice, in God's sense, is grandma having her groceries. (laughs) Right? That, that money or, or, or grandma's situation being fixed, right? that's God's justice. It's restored to how things should be. It's more than just, well, we have consequences for, for breaking a law. So we can receive a peace that means we don't have to carry our burdens, anxiety, and anger with us. The conflicts from years ago do not need to shape our relationships today or tomorrow. We can be free of anything and everything that creates brokenness in our relationships with others and with God. This is amazingly good news that we can celebrate, especially this time of year. God makes this peace available to us. But this comes with a second part of the message that that we cannot ignore. This shalom, this peace of God, doesn't come from ignoring sins but confessing them and forgiving them. This peace of God doesn't come from pretending that everything is all right, but it comes from actually allowing God to work in these situations and bring healing and wholeness. So this means to experience shalom, the peace of God, we have to face some things that we would rather avoid. Right? As John the Baptist preached, we have to confess sins We have to seek and offer forgiveness. We have to repent, says John the Baptist, which means to turn away from the wrong paths and and realign ourselves on the right paths. Change our mind, change our lives. It means we have to forgive those who wronged us and we have to seek forgiveness for those who we have wronged. It means we have to walk through Samaria instead of taking the long way around it. It means we have to talk to that person we've been avoiding. It means we have to name and confront that which we'd rather ignore. So make no mistake. The peace of God, shalom, is not the same thing as our own sense of comfort. Peace and comfort are not the same thing. Our sense of comfort is not the way to measure peace. Just because I'm comfortable doesn't mean we have peace. Right? It can actually mean the opposite. Let's say I do something wrong and I hurt somebody's feelings or I do actual harm to them, right? I'm probably more comfortable just pretending like I never did that. (laughs) Let's just move on and not focus on the past, (laughs) right? I'm probably more comfortable not acknowledging, not confessing my wrongdoing, not dwelling on it, you know how hard it is to have a conversation with somebody who said, I'm sorry I hurt you. I'm sorry I did that. Please forgive me. That's not comfortable. I'd much rather kind of just avoid it and pretend like 
never happened. So I might be comfortable, but there's no peace in that relationship. There's no reconciliation in that relationship. There's no restoration. There's no shalom. So my level of comfort is not the same as having peace and shalom. I can ignore the wrong I did, but the relationship is still broken. Even the people who have been wronged might feel more comfortable ignoring the situation than working to restore peace and shalom. Have you ever done that? I've, I have. There's been a problem, and you're like, it's fine. Don't worry about it. No big deal. And then you walk away going, it is a big deal. I can't believe they did that. And then let me go tell five other people, can you believe they did that to me? You're not going to believe what they did to me. Right? Because it's easier to avoid the moment, the conflict, the, the brokenness head on. And it's easier to make these crooked paths around it than it is to confront it. There are families, there are organizations, there are churches who have unspoken agreements just not to talk about those conflicts. Right? We've had holidays, we had Thanksgiving a few, we, you know, recently, and we've got more holidays coming up, and there'll be holiday gatherings. I would bet that in some of our families, there's topics that we're not going to discuss on purpose. <laughs> there are things that have happened in the life of our families that are like, we just don't talk about that when we get together. That fight we had five years ago, we're just not going to bring that up right now. <laughs> what so-and-so did with their job or their money, what somebody said about grandma, like, we're just not going to talk, talk about that this time. We want to be comfortable. <laughs> and so it lingers. It's not that the, the issues have been resolved. There's been no confession. There's been no forgiveness. There's been no reconciliation. And so there's no active conflict, but there's certainly no peace. We just collectively agree to pretend like nothing happened. Whatever happened, it didn't really happen. Just move on. We walk crooked paths around it. We see this anywhere from an individual level, in individual lives, individual relationships, all the way up to a national level. There's just things that make us uncomfortable and we just don't want to confront it. But if you've ever been part of a situation like that, you know that that's not peace. Right? There might not be active fighting, but shalom is missing. There's a condition of well-being that is missing. It's not whole. It's not healed. It's not reconciled. There's no restoration of a relationship. It lingers. It shows up as a lack of trust, as gossip, as anger, as skepticism. It shows up as fear. I might say, we're fine. Don't worry about it. What you did, it's not a big deal. And then you mess up again. And I'm like, this is what you do every time. <laughs> I've got the receipts. Because I haven't actually forgiven you for the last thing. It shows up as a lack of trust. I'll tell you, it's no big deal, but I'm not going to let you... Get in, put me in that situation again. I don't trust you anymore. It might show up as anger. I, I might not confront you, but then I show up and somebody cuts me off on the road and I let them have it. <laughs> it's unresolved conflict. It's brokenness that lives in our lives. Peacemaking, as the Bible talks about, is the process of confronting the brokenness of life, bringing it to wholeness and fulfillment. And that making peace can make us uncomfortable. We may have to choose between our comfort and the peace of God. Those might be on opposite ends of the spectrum. One of my, uh, I won't call it my favorite books because it's, it's a kind of a chore to read, but one of the most helpful books I, I read 
in my master's uh, program was a book called A Failure of Nerve by a man named Edmund Friedman. He was a family system specialist, which meant he spent his time studying the dynamics of families. And he wrote this book, Failure of Nerve, um, not just talking about families, but talking about dynamics, organizational dynamics, all kinds of stuff. Anyways, uh, one of the illustrations that he brings up in this book that has stuck with me for all these years was he talks about people that have a toothache. Right? So your tooth hurts really bad. And we live in a world that you can pick up the phone and make an appointment to go see a dentist. And they can diagnose what's wrong with your tooth and they can fix what's wrong with your tooth. It might be painful in the moment, but the answer is right there. Call the dentist, go to the dentist. But people with toothaches make these types of choices. I'm just going to quit drinking hot coffee. It won't, won't hurt my tooth as much. Or I'm going to cut out the ice cold water. Uh, I'm not going to eat ice cream to, you know, cut that out of my life. I'm going to chew on the other side of my mouth. Right? I, I, I'm going to not eat anything crunchy. I'm just going to eat jello for the rest of my life or something. Um, people will change their behaviors. They'll modify their behaviors and their activities. They will build an entire system to avoid the issue rather than dealing with it head on. Like I said, his book was, was talking about leaders um, that want to find quick fixes rather than dealing with things. Leaders that would rather lead from a place of comfort rather than a place of reconciliation and peace. And so we have that in the, in the church. Unresolved sin and conflict can be this toothache that just kind of lives, and we're like, I'm just go around it. I'm just not going to chew out of that side of my mouth. I'm just not going to talk about that. I'm just not going to, we just won't go there. This unresolved conflict can be an anchor that holds us in the ways of the world that can keep us from experiencing the peace of God. For most of church history, most of Christian history, uh, when Christians would come to the communion table, prior to doing that, they would have a time of confession they would confess their sins. They would uh, have a time of repentance. They would have a time. There's some scriptures that say if you have a, an issue with a brother or sister, go and fix that. Drop everything you're doing and go and work on that relationship before you come back. The communion table was a place where you met at peace with one another. It was a place where enemies were family. The table was a place where we acknowledged all of our need for grace and mercy. The table was a place where we prayed for our debts to be forgiven as we prayed for us to forgive those who owe us debts. The scripture instructs Christians to resolve any conflicts, to seek forgiveness, uh, to find shalom prior to sharing at the Lord's table. And throughout church history, this has been a practice of the church. It's only more recently in some traditions that we've gotten away from uh, regular communion and regular confession prior to communion. Um, but think about this. They shared that communion meal every week. And they had this practice of confession and reconciliation every week before the communion meal. Now, could you imagine if your oldest conflict was less than a week old? Could you imagine the, the, the peace and shalom of being reconciled to those you have wronged 
and those who have wronged you. Imagine if the oldest grudge in your life, the oldest unresolved issue, was a, was a week old or less. Because you took care of everything the week before, before taking communion. And if you couldn't do it in the church setting, then you'd leave church and go and take care of it directly. Could you imagine living in a community in which you weren't worried about people holding grudges or gossiping about you or assuming the worst about you when you messed up? This was the church. In its, in, in its ideal function, in its ideal form, the church is this place where brokenness is reconciled on a regular basis. Forgiveness of sins is offered freely on a regular basis. Confession of sins is announced regularly. And this is the peace that we long for during this Advent season. Yeah, we, we, you know, we, we have the old Miss America answers. What do you wish for? Well, world peace, obviously. We want world peace. It would be great if wars stopped. But the peace that God is talking about is something much more deeper than just an absence of conflict. Jesus tells his followers that blessed are those who make peace. Blessed are the peacemakers. This shalom that we desire for ourselves and for others. right? And so the invitation for us today is to be a peacemaker who prepares the way of the Lord by by working, actively engaging, committing to making crooked things straight. By making rough things smooth. By making broken things whole. We're invited to be someone committed to peace, not comfort. We're invited to be someone who works towards reconciliation and works towards wholeness rather than working to avoid the hard situations or trying to conquer others. Somewhere along the way, and I don't know exactly when or how this happened, but Christians have become, some Christians, not all of us, but some, some Christians have, have gotten wrapped up in what some call a culture war. We're led to believe that the only way to create peace in the world uh, is for us to conquer and destroy and rule over others. But God did not create the world as a battlefield. God created the world as a garden. We don't bring peace by being warriors. Rather, we make peace by tending to the world as gardeners. We seek to nurture, to feed, and support life. We seek to, to weed out harmful, life-stealing elements. Right? We're, we're to tend to the garden that God has placed us in. We're not warriors trying to conquer it. This is the image that we get, again, from Isaiah. This is, comes from Isaiah 2, though. It says, God will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. The Christian responsibility is to seek wholeness. It's to seek reconciliation. It's to seek community. This is shalom. This is the peace that God promises to us through Jesus. So may we be a people who speak the truth with love. Not to win or to control things, but to be in a loving relationship with those that God has given us to love. This is the work God has called us to as we wait during this Advent season, as we wait for the coming of Christ. This is the work of the church. And there's many ways that we can do this, and I, I, I wasn't here for the announcements, but I'm, I'm assuming the video got played about the, the cards for, for the first kids' families. I would strongly encourage you, that's a way to make peace. 
to establish relationship. Take a card, pray for families at the daycare, and then write them a note letting them know that you prayed for them and you're wishing them the best during this Christmas season. The church is called to be a community that makes peace with others, that establishes relationships that are built on wholeness. We have the opportunity to be a witness to that type of relationship to many families. So the invitation again for us today, to be peacemakers who make crooked things straight, who make rough things smooth, who make broken things whole. And as we seek to do that, know this, God is with us in those tasks. It is his spirit that will empower us to do those things. But that is the invitation. Make peace. Experience shalom. Pray with me, if you will. Great is this mystery of faith, Father. Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. We pray that your refining spirit would burn away all that does not endure your presence. Reveal your mercy in the very crucible of your love. Protect your sons and daughters who are facing trials and temptations or testing. And amid the sufferings of your children, reveal your eternal grace. Refine, strengthen the hope of your church through every adversity and every danger. Set the hearts of your people on fire to seek your justice and share your mercy until your dawn from on high breaks upon us. And on the day of your coming, we stand clothed in the righteousness of the Son and the presence of the Father by the refining power of the Holy Spirit. One God, now and forever. Amen and amen.